How to Play, Episode 9, Brass. Hello, listeners. Welcome to How to Play. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from Buffalo, New York. If you haven't listened to this show before, this show is about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I give a full explanation of a game, which could be used to learn the game yourself, or used to help you learn to teach the game. If you're a loyal How to Play listener, welcome back. Have your decoder rings ready, and we'll have a secret message a little bit later on. Happy New Year, everyone! This episode was recorded on January 1st, 2010. First episode of the new year on the first day of the new year. The game we're going to talk about today is Brass. Brass was designed by the incredible designer Martin Wallace. It plays with just three or four players, and it takes about two to three hours to play, normally more on the three-hour end when you're learning the game. Complexity rating. Brass is a double black diamond game, most definitely. There are a ton of rules for this game, and understanding how it all works together takes a lot of concentration. It takes uh, someone who's dedicated and really enjoys games. So this is this game is only for the most seasoned of gamers. Your first game, you'll just probably be learning how the whole game works, and it will take a few games in order to develop any sort of strategy. Again, if you have a group of gamers, this is a game that's worth the time investment to learn. As always, it will be really helpful to have all those components out in front of you so that you can look at the board and look at the different components that I'm talking about as I explain the game, or at least have your rule book handy so that you can look at those things. Again, let me remind you of the structure of this show. Uh, we'll start with a hook, then we'll have a meat, which is the main part of the rules. That'll probably be the longest section. Then we'll have a short hamster section where I'll give you a, a few beginning strategy tips. And then afterwards, I get into my footnotes and musings. I'll talk about some of the minor rules that you, you might miss. Actually, I'll have a rules quiz as a little refresher since this game has so many rules. And at the very end, I have a short discussion on strategy versus tactics. So I hope you'll stay tuned, listen to the whole episode. If you know the game already pretty well, you may want to skip ahead to sections three or four. All right, on with the show. Here comes the hook. Part one, the hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Brass. You are a very rich businessman in England at the start of the Industrial Revolution, and your goal is to be the most powerful businessman in England. This power is represented by victory points. There are two ways to get victory points. First way is to build a business and make it profitable. This is represented in the game by flipping the tile when that tile meets certain conditions. You have many different kinds of businesses in front of you, and each of them have different ways that they flip over to score you points. The second way is to build links. Those will be either canals early in the game or railroads later on that connect to these profitable or flip businesses. The game plays in two periods or stages. Each stage plays almost exactly the same way. First we'll have the canal stage. 
When the canal stage is over, we'll score points for flipped businesses and canals. Then we'll remove all the canals and essentially play the same game all over again. Then we'll play the rail stage. Again, we'll score points for the flip businesses and the railroads. And then the player with the most total points will win the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to Play the Game. Alright, so buckle yourself in and turn your thinking caps on. We have a lot of rules to go over, and we can't really get into the game without you having a full understanding of these rules, and there's going to be quite a bit of them. So, you ready for this? Okay, let's get to it. You already have a good foundation of the structure of the game and the goals. Remember that we will play basically the same game twice, the canal stage and the rail stage, with the major goals being to flip your businesses over and to build links that connect to flip businesses because that is what scores your points. So now what you need to know is how does a turn work and how do these businesses get flipped? Here's how a normal turn works in the game. Everyone will get paid, everyone will take two actions by playing two cards, we will reset the turn order, and everyone will fill back up to eight cards. So first, on a turn, everyone will get paid, and you'll get paid according to this track on the lower left side of the board. This track is actually a dual purpose track. We're going to use it to mark both our victory points and our income with different markers. But don't get confused by the different numbers on there. The top number is really just used for victory points when we score at the middle and end of the game. The bottom number is the income. So your little round wooden disc is on that space that says 10. But it's good to remember that that 10 means absolutely nothing. The round disc for your income uses the smaller number underneath. So if you look at that number, it says zero pounds. L is, of course, the pound symbol. So your income is zero pounds. The other numbers are used for, in the middle and the end of the game, we'll use those top hat markers to mark our victory points. So don't get confused between the top and the bottom numbers. Now also look at how those numbers go up. They go up relatively quickly at the start, but then they start to flatten out, if you notice, as you go higher up the track. So know that when you go three spaces on the income track, you're not necessarily going to be raising your income by three. So we all get paid, which for the first turn is nothing. Now we're going to want to do something about that, and we'll talk about how to do that later. Next, players will take their turns in the order shown on the board, which to start the game is completely random. And on your turn, you will always get to use two of the eight cards in your hand to perform two actions. Actions such as building a tile, taking a loan, building a link, and more. So then you'll reset the player order. The player order is set by how much money each player spent in that turn. The player who spent the least amount in the turn will go first in the next turn, and so on. And the player who spent the most in the previous turn will go last in the next turn. If there's a tie, the player order between those two players stays the same. Make sure everyone draws up to eight cards. Normally we just draw after we're done with our turn. And then a new round starts and repeat. So the basic steps there are income, get paid. Each player takes their turn by playing two cards. Reset the turn order, refill the hand, and do it all over again. We'll continue that until the whole deck is gone. 
and the players will continue until they've used all the cards in their hand as well. So once the deck is gone, you'll just not draw cards anymore, but your hand will go down from 8 to 6 to 4 to 2, and once everyone has used all of their cards, the stage will be over and will score which again, as I said before, is the halfway point of the game. And the game is set up so that each player will have the same number of cards. You're going to want to check the rules because with three or four players, you have to take a different number of cards out of the deck to ensure that each player has an equal number of turns. Now the only exception to this flow of the game is on the very first turn of the game, you only play one card and you do just one action instead of the usual two actions. So when all the cards have been played, the canal age is over, and you'll score victory points. What's going to score is the businesses that have been flipped over, and the canals. Then all the canals will get wiped off the board, and you essentially play the game again with the railroads. You'll reshuffle the deck, everyone will get eight cards, and you'll just keep going. People get paid, two actions, set turn order, refill the hand and you'll keep going until all those cards have been played, and you'll score the businesses that have been flipped and the railroads. And at that point, the person with the most points will win the game. So the heart of the game is taking your two actions on your turn. Whenever you do an action, you always play a card. There are five actions you can take on your turn. You might do the same one twice, or you could do two different ones. They are build a business tile on the board, build a link, that's a canal or a railroad, develop industry, sell cotton, or take a loan. For all of these actions, you always play a card from your hand to do them. A lot of the times, what's on the cards doesn't even really matter. It's just to signify that you have taken an action, and it's one of the costs of playing an action. Let's talk about each of these actions in more detail. Action number one, building a business tile. Now you want to build businesses so that eventually you'll be able to flip them so that you get points. But flipping businesses actually has two rewards. One of which we've talked about a lot, which is flipping them to get victory points. But the other reward for flipping the business is that as soon as you flip a business, you raise your income level, which is how you'll be able to get paid each turn. And eventually, hopefully, you'll get paid more and more throughout the game. Early in the game, you're going to want to flip some of those businesses as quickly as you can so that you can get a decent amount of income and get paid each turn. Now let's look at a business tile. If you can, get one in front of you. If not, I'll just explain them. In the middle is the picture, and the picture represents what business it is. Anchor is a port, uh, the building there is a cotton mill, the cart is a coal mine, and the iron something or other is the iron works, and then there's a ship for a shipyard. Also on the front of the tile in the upper right, you'll see a number with a pound sign, and that's how much the business costs to start. In the lower right, some of them require resources, either a black square or an orange square. Those represent coal cubes and iron cubes, the black and orange cubes respectively. So you always have to pay money, and sometimes you have to pay cubes in order to build the business. On the reverse side, you'll see a number in a coin. That's how many spaces you get to go up on the income track immediately when you flip it. Now that doesn't necessarily mean how much more income you'll get because remember that income track flattens out. There's also a number in a hexagon in the lower right. That is victory points. That's how many points you will score during the scoring rounds. And points, of course, are how you win the game. 
Getting a large income is great, but remember, of course, your final income has no bearing on whether you win or lose the game. Now, how do you get these buildings to flip over? Let me explain this real briefly, what the buildings want to do. Cotton mills want to sell cotton. Ports want to buy cotton. So mills want to be connected to the port or to a distant market, which is essentially a port that's off the board. Once they sell the cotton, which is one of the actions, both the cotton mill and the port flip over. Now, if you own both of these buildings, that's fantastic, but you may not, and that's okay. So you may want to sell to one of those distant markets, the, the ports marked with a port symbol on the board. When you sell to these, you only flip your mill, but you also get an extra bonus, and I'll talk about that more later. Now, coal mines and iron plants want to get rid of all their cubes. When you build one of those, they get a certain number of black for coal mines and orange for iron plants on them. And you'll notice in the upper left corner, there's a number in an orange or black square, and that's how many cubes they get. And as people need them, they have to take them from the mines or plants that are on the board. And when all those cubes have been used, they are flipped over, meaning you made money. Hooray! Shipyards simply want to be built. You'll notice these are very expensive and can only be built in just a few areas on the board. They're really hard to build, but as soon as you build them, they automatically flip over and you'll get a load of victory points. So again, to flip these things over, to score the points and raise your income level, mills want to sell cotton, ports want to buy cotton, mines and plants want to use up all their cubes, and shipyards just want to be built. Alright, so how do you decide where you can build these buildings and, and how do you pay for them? Well, I'll talk about that more later, but for now, let's just remember that the first action that you can do is to build a building tile by playing a card from your hand, paying some money, and possibly paying for some resource cubes. Action number two, build a link. So this is either building a canal in the first stage of the game or a railroad in the second stage. For canals, you simply pay a cost of three pounds and you place one of the canal tiles on a blue canal connecting two of the cities on the board. And of course, you ditch one of the cards from your hand as one of the costs. So it would be three pounds and a card. Now only one player may have each link there on the board. So once someone takes a spot, sorry, you're out of luck and you'll have to choose a different canal to build. So if you wanted to build two links for one of your turns, you could simply ditch two cards, any cards. What's on the cards doesn't really matter. You pay six pounds for two canals, three for each, and put two tiles on the board in the, in the blue rivers there, and that was your whole turn. When you build links, every link you build must connect to a previous link or to one of your business tiles. You're not allowed to just build them anywhere. So it is very possible to get cut off. So you need to be aware of that as other people are building canals, you don't really want to get cut off. You may have to build a business somewhere else on the board just to get another area that you can build more links off of. When we get to the rail stage, the cost changes. You have to pay now five pounds and a coal cube to build the railroad and of course play the card from your hand. You also have the option of buying two rail links with one action. This costs a premium, but you do get to save the action. You can build two links for 15 pounds and two coal cubes and one action. And then you could still do something else on that turn. But of course, if you didn't want to save the action, you, you didn't have enough money, instead, you could have used both actions, pay 10 pounds, 
two coal cubes, do both your actions, and use the two cards. So you're paying five extra bucks, essentially, to save an action. And these costs are all signified up in the corner of the game board, in case that you forget. So now you're going to be spending money in this game, mostly to start businesses, and sometimes to buy resource cubes and to build these links. When you spend money, what happens to the money? This is one of the harder parts to remember in the game. Whenever you spend money, do not put it back in the bank. There's a box on the board that says spent money. And you put it in that box. And if you remember back at the beginning of the explanation, I said that we reset the turn order. And the turn order is determined by how much money that you spend. So you have to remember, whenever you spend money, it goes in your colored box so we can see how much money you spent compared to other people. I have to admit, I always forget that. Ryan, where's your money? Uh, I put, uh, oh, geez, uh, let's see, how much did I spend again? And then we have to count it all up and people get mad. So don't forget, all right? Let's get back to building links. Why do you want to build those links? There are four reasons why you want to build links. And the first reason is there are only two ways to get victory points in the game. And they can be a really cheap way to get a lot of victory points. For every flipped business they are connected to, you score one victory point when we score at the end of the canal round. So say you had a canal and it was in between two cities and each of those cities had two businesses which were flipped over. Whoever's business it is doesn't matter as long as they're businesses that are flipped over. The game tells you to count the number of orange circles but ignore the number in the orange circle. So there's two orange circles on one side, two orange circles on the other side, so that will be worth four victory points. There are also some orange circles printed on the board which you can get bonuses for being connected to. So for example, if you had a canal connecting Colm and Yorkshire, Yorkshire is one of those external locations, and it has a symbol with two orange circles on it. So that link is worth two points on that side, and let's say it had two flipped cotton mills on the other side. You'd add those up and that canal would be worth two plus two, four victory points during scoring. The second reason you want to build links is because it gives you more places to build other businesses and links. The first business you build can go anywhere, but later on, in order to build into other places, usually you're going to need to be connected to those places. The third reason you want to build links is because it gives you access to uh, coal resources. Coal has to be brought along links, and so if you're not connected to something, you can't get coal. So for example, if you want to build a business that requires coal, you have to be able to bring that coal from somewhere by being connected to a coal mine with links or to a port. It doesn't matter whose links they are, as long as there are links either to the coal mine or to a port so that you can buy some coal. And the fourth reason you want to build links is because it allows you to sell cotton. In order to flip your cotton mills, they have to be connected to either a port or a distant market. They need to be connected to one of those anchor symbols, either from a circle on one of those external locations or one of those port tiles somewhere on the board. So building links is good because it gives you points, it gives you more places to build, it gives you a way to carry coal, and a way to sell cotton. Action number three, develop. Developing, so you have stacks of tiles in front of you. Why do you have stacks and why did you have to spend 15 minutes putting them in those stacks? Well, the technology in all of these different areas develop very fast. And in order to have the best mills, mines, plants, and shipyards, you have to invest money in good technology. 
The businesses in the stacks are stacked up by what's called a technology level, which means how good and how efficient those businesses are. And the deeper down you get in those stacks, the better the businesses are. The technology level is shown by the bold number in the lower left corner, and those numbers can go from 0 to 4. So all your businesses are stacked from the lowest number, the 1 or the 0 in the case of the ships, all the way down to level 4s. And if you look carefully, you notice that the deeper you get in those stacks, the more victory points you get for businesses that flip over in the threes and fours. Though you'll also notice that they get more expensive, both with the money you have to start out with and how many cubes they need. You have to build them in order, so you have to go all the way through the stack. And that's a lot of money, a lot of tiles to get through to get down to those fours. Also, know that the level one businesses, those technologies are so primitive that they become obsolete at the end of the canal age. And any of these tiles that are on the board at the end of the canal stage come off the board at that point. You also notice that the shipyard even has level zero tiles just because you really have to develop that ship technology. So what are you going to do with all this junk on the top? Technological development to the rescue! So for one action, you can play a card, any card, doesn't matter what's on it, and develop. You develop by taking one or two tiles from the top of one or two of your stacks and removing them from the game, thus revealing the tasty goodness underneath. Now usually if you use the develop action, you'll want to utilize the full two tile develop, or it's kind of like wasting half an action. So one action, one or two tiles you get to remove from the game. Remember, you get two actions for your whole turn. So if you want to, you could play two of your cards and you can remove four tiles from some of those stacks, which would either allow you to get really deep into one stack or to just get a lot of the level one junk off the top of multiple stacks. But there is a cost to this, and the cost is one iron cube per tile. Now where are you going to get that iron? Well, if anybody's built an iron plant, you can just take it from the iron plant. If not, you'll have to buy it from the demand track. There's a demand track on the board for resources available if anyone needs them, and they're not anywhere on the board. And it has a scale of prices, so the more emptied out that demand track gets, the more expensive that the cubes get. The prices go one pound, one pound, two pound, two pound, three pound, three pound, four pound, four pound. So, if you're the first person to go, you can develop four tiles. You'd have to buy four iron from the demand track. And so you'd buy them, you'd get the top four, which would be kind of a good deal. One plus one plus two plus two, which, according to my math, is six. So six pounds, that's a pretty good deal. Now, if the next person went and they wanted to do the same thing, well, the demand track is a lot lower, so they're going to have to pay more. So they're going to have to pay three plus three plus four plus four, which, let me get a calculator, carry the one, total of 14, 14 pounds. So how does that demand track get filled back up? Well, I'll get back to that later. But for now, just know that developing can be really helpful. It helps you clear out the junk from the top and lets you get to the goodies underneath. Just remember, developing always costs one iron cube per tile. And you can do up to two tiles per action, which, like I said, you could do four tiles for two actions, assuming you could get the iron cubes. Action number four, selling cotton. Now, if you have a mill and it's connected to a port, 
buy links. Uh, the color of the player doesn't really matter. You can sell cotton to the port. And then you do that as an action, and both tiles will flip over. Ideally, they'll both be yours, but sometimes you may need to sell to an opponent's port just out of necessity. Now you can always sell to the distant market. The distant market means you'd be connected to one of those external locations that has an anchor symbol on it. Or if you're connected to a port, you can choose to sell to the distant market and not sell to that port, whether the port is flipped over or not. If the port is not flipped over, when you sell to the distant market, it's not going to trigger flipping it over. So say a an opponent had a unflipped port that you were connected to, you could choose to sell to the distant market instead of selling using that player's port. Those distant markets really want your cotton at the beginning of each age, so you're going to get a little bonus, but eventually the market floods and they won't buy your cotton anymore. Look in the lower right corner of the board and you'll see the distant market demand. It starts there up at the top at three and will go down and down. To see how much the demand is satisfied, you're going to flip one of these distant market tiles. And these are these big chunky tiles, and they have values that go on them from 0 to minus 4. And you're going to take the demand marker and send the value of cotton on that chart. And that's how much of a bonus you get to add to your income level. So let's say Sloth is selling some cotton. Cotton mill? Yes, Sloth has a cotton mill tile on coal connected with a link to Yorkshire. He uses an action to sell cotton to Yorkshire. So Sloth plays a card from his hand, any card, and then he flips the distant market tile since he's selling to the external market. The distant market tile says minus one. So Sloth moves the demand marker down one space and you can see the demand is still high and it's going to give you a bonus of three. So Sloth gets to flip over his tile, he got to sell that cotton. His income goes up the value on the tile plus the bonus. Now the tile had a five and an orange circle and the orange circle is your income and then five plus the three bonus. So he immediately goes up eight on the income track. Sloth love income. He's also eventually gonna get victory points when we get to that scoring round. He's gonna get three victory points because that's the number in the hexagon. When the distant market gets low enough you may be pushing your luck. If it hits zero, then you've wasted your action. The distant market cotton demand has crashed and they won't buy your cotton anymore. You can only sell to unflipped ports at that point. Like I said, the distant market tiles go from zero to minus four. So let's say Chunk is gonna sell cotton to Scotland. The demand marker is three spaces away from the no more demand space. And Chunk, he goes for it anyway. He sells the cotton and flips the tile. Well, Chunk, you know, poor him, he just happens to flip up the minus four tile. The cotton demand has crashed. He still has to pay his card. The marker goes to the very bottom space of that demand track. His tile remains unflipped and he loses the action. He still has one more action, but he's gonna have to find a port to sell his cotton to. And he's gonna lose out on victory points if he doesn't get that cotton mill flipped. I don't think we're going to see a Chunky shuffle anytime soon, as Chunky's probably pretty sad about that cotton demand crashing. It's very important to know that you can have multiple mills sell for one action. This is a very efficient and excellent move if you can pull it off. So let's say Data has a cotton mill in one city connected to a cotton mill in one city connected to a port. 
So he's got two cotton mills and one unflipped port there. They're all unflipped. And so for his action, he says, I'm going to sell cotton. So he's going to sell with both of his cotton mills. The first one, he's going to sell the unflipped mill to the unflipped port. And they'll both flip over and he'll get the income. For the second one, he'll sell the unflipped mill to the port, but this time he'll have to sell to the distant market because his port is already flipped over. So he does that as well, and he got three things all flipped over for one action, and he got probably a bonus from the distant market. Now that'll probably take a long time to set up, but if you can get that to happen, that's a, that can be a great move. Cotton mills of power! My cotton mills of power! All right, let's move on to action number five, taking loans. It's very likely you're going to run out of money and need more. For an action, you can get more money. And in this game, when you take out a loan, you never really have to pay it back. How this game handles loans is that instead of you taking money and paying it back, what happens is taking a loan brings your income level down. When you take a loan, you can take 10, 20, or 30 pounds from the bank. This is going to slide you back on the income, one, two, or three chunks on the income track, respectively. And this isn't spaces, it's chunks. What chunks am I talking about? You'll notice how the income track is divided into light blue and dark blue chunks. So if I borrow 30 pounds, I have to go back three chunks on the track. So let's say Mouth has an income of 50, which is a light blue space, and an income of 17 pounds and Mouth borrows money. He pays an action card. What's on the card again does not matter. And he borrows 10 pounds. He'll slide back to the first dark blue space, which happens to be 48, and now his income is down to 16 pounds. If he wanted to take 20, then he'd slide back to the first light blue space, slide down to 45, which is now an income of 15 pounds. If he wanted to take 30 pounds all at once, he'd slide all the way back down to the 42 space. And so his income would go all the way down to 14 pounds a turn instead of 17. Which, in the grand scheme of things, he got 30 pounds and he only lost getting three more pounds a turn. It's a pretty good deal. 30 pounds is the most you can take with one action. And most of the time you take a loan, you'll probably want to take that full 30, as it's kind of a waste of an action to take 20 pounds on one turn and 10 pounds a couple of turns later. And of course, if you're really broke and don't mind tanking your income, you can certainly use both actions and two cards to take 60 pounds and sliding your income back six chunks. You'll probably have this natural resistance to taking loans. In so many games, when you take loans, it's just horribly bad. But don't be especially late in the game. Remember that wherever that income level is, even though you work so hard to get it up that high, it has no bearing on your final score in the game. So don't be afraid to take some loans. All right, that was quite a bit. Let's review. Let's see if you can answer these questions correctly. If you really want to play along, you can have your pause button ready and pause after each question and see if you can get these questions right. How many actions do you get in each turn? I hope you said two, two actions. What do you have to play every time you do an action? Well, a card, of course. You're going to be playing two cards a turn. Whenever you spend money, where does it go? It always goes in the spent money box. Let's see if you can remember the five actions you can do on a turn. Did you remember them? They were build a building tile, build a link, develop, sell cotton, take a loan. So how many of those did you get right? Well, 
We're almost through, but believe it or not, there are some more important mechanics I've got to tell you about before you can start playing this game. Take a deep breath, keep that thinking cap on, you're almost there. You need to know how to place and buy buildings. You'll have eight cards in your hand, and I've told you many times that when you play them, a lot of times it doesn't really matter what they are. Well, that's kind of not true, because there is one time that it really does matter what the cards are in your hand, and that is the cards tell you where you're able to play your new building tiles that you build. So when you throw cards away by doing loans or developing or building links, you want to use the ones that you don't think you're going to need. There's two different kinds of cards. There are symbol cards and location cards. Symbol cards have pictures of the different businesses on them. Location cards have specific cities where you can play. How you play these two different kinds of cards and where you can play buildings is one of the hardest things to remember in this game. It can get confusing and frustrating because you're trying to lay a building somewhere and you just can't remember how those cards work. So really listen up here. If you want to build a business, you need to build it at a place that has the matching symbol for what you want to build. So if you want to build a port, you're going to look for a square on the board that has a port on it. And of course a mill, you're looking for those cotton mill buildings. Obviously the ports there you'll notice are near the oceans. And some places have two symbols in a square, meaning you could build either or. If there's a cotton mill and an ironworks in the square, you can choose which one you want to build. So you need a square on the board with the right symbol on it, and you need a card that will let you play in that area. Again, you have two options, the symbol card or the city card. The city card is a little bit nicer, because with a city card, you can build any business there that has an available icon. So with a Manchester card, I could build a cotton mill, a coal mine, or an ironworks there. Of course, once someone builds something in a square, it's gone. So if someone built the ironworks in Manchester, I'm out of luck and can't build that. Now let's say you have the symbol card. It can be a little harder to play in a place with a symbol card because to use that card, you must be connected to it with your color links. If you're purple, you need to have purple canals to that city and then you can build using the symbol card. So to build in a location, you need the correct symbol in the location and either the right city card or you need the symbol card, like a coal mine card, and links to that city. So you need a canal into the city that you wanted to build the coal mine. So the symbol cards can be a little bit harder to use. You're bound to forget this rule probably three or four times the first time you play this game. City cards, you can do anything there. Symbol cards, you have to have links into that city. So let's say Chester Copperpot is building some businesses. If he has a Preston card, he could build a port or a cotton mill or an ironworks there in Preston, anything that was available there. Now let's say he had a port card. He wanted to build a port in Lancaster. He can't just drop a port in Lancaster because he doesn't have a canal that goes to Lancaster. In fact, one of the other players has that canal. There's no way he can build that port in Lancaster unless he were to pick up a Lancaster card. Now there is an emergency option for building buildings. Remember how I've been telling you a million times that you always do two actions on your turn. Now that's not exactly true because there's the emergency double action, which is you can always play two cards and use both your actions your whole turn and then you're allowed to build in any city in any square regardless of what cards you throw out or where your links are 
You do, however, still have to match the symbol on the square on the board, but that's your emergency action. You could spend your whole turn to build wherever you want. Here's another important rule about building. In the canal age, you can only build in the same city once. Once you have something, say in Manchester, say you have a cotton mill in Manchester, you can't build another cotton mill or anything in Manchester. This is where links become important because you need to get to some of those other areas in the board so you can build. Once we get to the railroad age, this restriction is lifted. You can build all of the businesses there in Manchester if you want to. Alright, so you want to buy the building tile. You buy a building tile, you spend the right amount of money. The money goes in the spent money box. And then, sometimes you have to pay either a coal or an iron cube or both, especially for the higher tech level cards that are worth more points and shipyards. You're going to need to get cubes to pay for the businesses. The cubes are required are pictured in the lower right corner. Now, where do those cubes come from? Well, first, you have to try to get them from the businesses that are on the board. If they're not available on the board, you'll have to buy them from the demand track at the price listed. Now let's talk about how fussy coal is. Coal must always be transported to where it's being built. This means you can't just magically take the coal. There needs to be links to get the coal to where you want to build the building. If there's no links into where you're building and you need coal, then you're out of luck. Also, you have to take coal from the closest possible spot. So if there's a coal mine two links away and a coal mine four links away, you must take the coal from the closer one. And sometimes that will help your opponent. If it was tied, if there are two coal mines two links away, whoever is using the coal can choose where they want to get the coal from. Now here's the good news. If you get coal from a coal mine on the board, it's free. But realize that unless it's your coal mine, you're essentially probably helping the person whose coal mine it is because they want to get rid of all those coal cubes to flip them over. But a lot of times this can't be avoided. If there are no mines on the board to get coal from, then you at least need to be connected to any anchor symbol on the board because this represents you getting it from somewhere else and, and you're getting it from that demand track then. You're going to pay the price of what the coal costs there on the demand track. If you don't have any money, well then guess what? You're out of luck. You can't build it. So remember, coal has to be transported. You need to have links into where you want to build connected to a coal mine or to a harbor to buy the coal. Getting coal can be kind of annoying. All of the same and what I just said is true with railroad links. Railroad links need coal to be built. So they'll need to be connected to a place with coal, either a port or a distant market or a coal mine. And that means coal gets in very high demand in the second stage of the game as people want to build a lot of railroad links. Now iron, the orange cubes. They're orange because they're magical. Iron, for some strange reason, does not need to be transported. It magically appears when you need it. You simply say, ta-da! And the iron magically appears from either the ironworks or the demand track. For some reason, this magic trick works for iron, but not for coal. Don't ask me for a thematic explanation for this. Ask Mr. Wallace. But the rule still applies that if you need iron, you have to take it from one of the ironworks on the board. If there are multiple ironworks with cubes on them, you can choose where you want to take it from. Again, you essentially for free. If there's none on the board, then you must buy it from the demand track. Remember, you're going to need to get iron not only when you want to buy the expensive businesses, but also whenever you want to develop. 
you know, burn those tiles out of the game like we talked about earlier. You need one iron cube to do that. So you're either going to get those from the board or you're going to pay for them on the demand track. So we've seen how that demand track empties out through buying cubes that aren't available. Now how's that demand track going to get filled back up? Well, someone should meet that demand because demand means big profits. You want to fill that demand. When you build, remember that if you build a cold mine or an ironworks, it gets cubes. Now let's talk about what happens to those cubes. If you build your top if you build your top coal mine, it gets two coal cubes. Now usually you just put those two coal cubes on that mine and eventually people will connect to it and use those cubes. But if there's a demand for coal represented by empty spaces on the demand track, that coal mine fills that demand immediately. So for example, say there were three empty spaces on the demand track meaning the 1, 1, and the 2 spaces were empty. You build that level 1 coal mine, which comes with 2 cubes. Since there is a demand for coal, there's empty spaces, you get to sell it immediately. The cubes go right into the first 2 empty spaces, the 2 and the 1 spot. And as a bonus, since there's such a high demand for the coal, you get the amount of money on those spots. You get paid 2 plus 1, 3 pounds from the bank. And also, you already used up all the cubes on that mine, so it flips over immediately. Your income's going to go up, and you're going to score victory points during scoring. So as you can see, when the demand track empties out, you really want to build that correct business, the ironworks or the coal mine, as not only are you going to get that business to flip immediately, you're also going to get a few extra pounds for your trouble. Now, remember that annoying coal rule. Coal has to be transported. To sell that coal to the demand track, it has to be connected to a port or a distant market. If it's not connected, you may want to build those links to connect it. As soon as it is connected to a port or distant market, you can then sell those cubes to the demand track. In fact, you have to. But iron is magical. Ta-da! And it just magically goes from the ironworks to the boats. You, you immediately sell it to that demand track. It does not have to be connected by links. So speaking of the demand track, there are a few odd situations where you're actually allowed to build over other businesses on the board. Now you're always allowed to build over your own tiles as long as you are replacing it with a higher tech level. So there's a one there, say, you could build over it with a two. Now usually you don't want to do that because you're basically taking points away from yourself. But remember that it is an option. Now, you sometimes can build over top of other players' ironworks or coal mines. But the only time you can do this, if there are none of the respective cubes on the board or on the demand track, and you build over it with a higher tech level. So say iron is just wiped out. There's no iron on the board. The iron track is completely empty. Say you had a level 3 ironworks and there was a level 2 ironworks of someone else. You could then build over their ironworks in which of course the iron would immediately sell to the demand track. The other person's iron thing would come off the board. They wouldn't get it back and actually they're going to lose those points because they're not going to get scored. Doesn't happen very often. Just be aware of it if that demand track empties out. And briefly, let's talk about shipyards. Be aware that you have to develop your way into the shipyards. 
And everyone probably won't build these because they're kind of hard to build. There's those zero-level tiles you got to build through. Zero-level tiles are just there to get in your way. In the Canal Age, only one player is going to be able to build a shipyard because the only accessible area on the board is Liverpool. There's a special rule that says you may not build in Birkenhead or Barrow and Furnace in the, in the Canal Age. You have to wait for the Rail Age to build in those two locations. Even if you have the location card, you can't build there. All right, so let's sum up. Let's talk about the end of each age. Scoring. Each round ends, remember, when everyone has played all their cards and have gone through the deck. Score each player. You're going to count up the hexagons for all the flipped buildings on the board. You're also going to count up the canals. Remember, you get a point for each orange circle that's connected to those canals. You're going to add it all up. You're going to use those top hat symbols to mark the score. And try not to get confused between the two markers. Top hats are victory points, and the round discs are income level. Top hats are what win you the game. And that's basically going to be half your points you probably potentially be able to score a few more in the Rail Age than the Canal Age. Then, all the level 1 buildings become obsolete. So any building that's a level 1 on the board, flipped or unflipped, comes off the board. Now, if you still have level 1 buildings in your stacks, you're still stuck with them. They don't go away. You can't play them on the board anymore either. You're going to have to develop out of those. There's a symbol on a lot of those tiles that shows a canal. That means that you can only play them during the canal age. Once you get to the rail age, can't be played anymore, have to develop. The other implication of this is it means that any two level or higher buildings, level three or four, they're going to score twice in the game if you get them down and flipped before the rail age, which is fantastic. So if you can get a lot of two level or higher buildings flipped over, before the end of the Canal Age, that's great because it's essentially double points. You're also going to remove all the canals from the board, and we're going to pretty much start the game over. We'll deal out eight cards, and now we're going to use railroad tracks, and the railroad tracks, again, cost five, five pounds and one coal cube for one, or 15 pounds and two coal cubes for two. We'll just keep playing again until all the cards are gone. We'll score up again the flipped businesses and the railroads, and the most points wins, with income level being the tiebreaker in the case of a tie. It probably won't be a tie as the final scores are you know, well over 100. Okay, you made it. You got through all the rules. Did you comprehend anything? Well, I hope so. But let's sum it all up to help you look at the big picture. There are only, really, 13 things that are critical to remember. I'm going to call this the 4252 approach to learning this game. The magic number 4252. What's 4252? There's four steps in a turn. You get two actions per turn. There's five different choices for your actions, two ways to score victory points. The four steps in a turn, we get paid, we play our cards, we reset the turn order, and we refill our hand. The two actions. Per turn, you always play two cards. There are five different actions you can choose from. Build a building tile, build a link, develop, sell cotton, take out a loan. And there's two ways to score. Flipped buildings and links. Four, two, five, two. Four steps in a turn, two actions, five choices of actions, two ways to score points. So there it is. That's the meat of the game. Without getting into those tiny little rules, which of course I'll talk about in the footnotes. 
there are a ton of rules to this game, and there's lots of exceptions to almost every rule. And usually in game design, that's considered a bad thing and messy. But once you get into it, I think you'll be amazed by how much the mechanics match the thematic feel, how much you really feel that supply and demand. Almost all of these rules have either an important thematic or mechanical purpose. And so once you get in playing it and comprehending it, I think you'll just be amazed by how brilliant this game is and how the gameplay is so engaging and exciting. If you're still fuzzy about those rules, I'm going to have a 10-question quiz to review the rules for you in the footnote section. But for now, let's get to that hamster. Hopefully that will help you pull all this together as well. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. So as you heard, the rules for this game are pretty complex and a lot to comprehend. So I'm going to keep this hamster section brief. But I think a few tips will hopefully help you pull all this together. If you want more on strategy for this game, or if you're an experienced player of brass, I really recommend that you check out Mark Johnson's podcast, Board Games To Go. He did an episode all about brass, and that episode really dug into the strategy of this game and different playing experiences with the game. So there's a lot more information on this game from that podcast. Alright, so you may be feeling a bit overwhelmed in getting started in this game. I'm just going to give you six pieces of advice to get you started playing your first game or two of Brass. Tip number one, get your income going as soon as possible. You need to get some money rolling in quick so that you can make some money each turn. And the first few steps of the income track climb pretty quickly, so you'll want to get some of those businesses flipped at least within the first three or four turns of the game so that you can start collecting some money. Now, how the heck do you do that again? Well, the easiest way is to build a cotton mill to a distant market and sell it. Or build a cotton mill and a port and connect them with a canal, and then sell the cotton and flip them both. Remember the rule about selling cotton from two mills is one action. So if you can, getting two mills set up, connected to a port or distant market, and do that all at once would be a good charge to your income. Tip number two, remember to develop. You can do this a lot or a little, that's up to you, but it's likely you'll want to at least develop away a few of those one tiles so that you can take advantage of the double scoring I talked about, the one tiles only score once. Focus on one or two businesses that you really want to get deep into the threes or fours to take advantage of those greater victory points. Tip number three, don't be afraid of loans. There's no reward, no special prize, no ribbon for anybody not taking any loans. Don't fear them. Take money when you need to, especially near the end of the game. Tip number four, pounce on opportunities. This game is all about jumping on an opportunity when it becomes available. Don't get so focused on what your long-term plan is to ignore these opportunities when they become available. What am I talking about? Well, when that demand track for something is empty or nearly empty, get that business on the board. Forget what you're doing for a turn and make it happen. Also, trying to be the first to sell to those distant markets gives you a nice bonus and makes it more difficult or risky for others to sell. Or build that link that is connected to suddenly seven flipped businesses. you got to keep your eye on those sorts of things. Tip number five, if you're in doubt, build some links. Links are almost always good. 
especially early in an age when you can get the prime positions. They also help you build more buildings and give you more options later on. And my last piece of advice, it's time for the official trademarked how to play Swiss Army Knife strategy that could be used in almost every Euro game ever made. It seems to work for every game in existence and most particularly works well in this one. Tip number six, try to do what the other players aren't doing. This is a game all about supply and demand. And if no one is doing something, building ports or coal mines, they'll need to use that business. And then they'll have to use yours and you'll be happy. If everyone goes for the ships, don't even touch your ship stack. If no one's selling cotton, then by all means, be that cotton baron and try to dig deep and try to get to those four cotton mills. You have to keep an eye on what the other players are building what tiles they're burning, and what resources are in demand. The player who does this the most effectively seizes the opportunities that are available and fulfills the demands opened up by what's being ignored by the other players is probably going to win the game. Part four, footnotes and musings. There's a great player aid in the rule book and in it, it contains commonly missed rules. And if you haven't played it for a while or you just read the rules, this is a great reference to look back and look at that. But I took that and I used it to come up with a 10 question quiz to see how well you were listening. Uh, these are gonna be true or false questions. Again, if you wanna really take it, you could have that pause button ready so you could think about it and, and answer. Or if you're really committed to uh, geekiness, you could get a piece of paper and write down your answers and, and score it up. So here we go. This is a 10 question true or false quiz on commonly forgotten yet important to remember rules about brass. Number one, you always play two cards to take two actions every turn. This is false. In the first turn, you only play one card. And don't forget, you can choose to play two cards to take the emergency action to build a tile anywhere on the board. Question number two. Some tiles can only be played during a specific stage, rail or canal. This is true. The zeros can't be played at all, and the ones can't be played once you get to the rail age. Question three. When you build a coal mine, the tile always gets the cubes listed on the black square on top of the tile. This is false because sometimes the cubes are going to sell immediately to that demand track and won't even go to that tile. Question number four. Every time you develop, which means removing a tile and one of your stacks from the game, you must pay an iron cube. This is true either from the board first and then the demand track. Question number five. Without exception, whenever you spend money during a turn, it goes in the money spent box. This is true. There's no exception to this. Money always goes into that money spent box. And one thing I don't think I mentioned is that after you reset the turn order, of course, that money spent clears out so that you can recheck it next turn. Question number six. It is possible to build over top of cotton mills. This is true but only over your own cotton mills. You can build over the ironworks or the coal mines, again, if all the cubes are gone, but the only cotton mills you could build over are your own. Question number seven. 
You can always sell cotton if you're connected to the distant market. This is false. Once the demand crashes, you can't sell there anymore. You're going to have to find an unflipped port. Question number eight. Once you build a business, it's there for the whole rest of the game. This is false. Two things could happen. It could be a level one and get cleared out after the canal age, or it could potentially be built over. Question number nine. To build a business, if you have the symbol card for an area, you must be connected to the area with links as well, links of your color. This is true, an important one not to forget. Question number 10. It's possible to have two businesses by the same player in the same city. This is true, but only during the railroad age. So how many get right? 10 is an A+, plus, 6 is a D, 5 is an F. You have those scores, you, you need to go back and listen again. Or maybe just uh, give a read through the rules. Alright, believe it or not, there are still more rules to this game. These are the vegetables for brass, uh, things that I would probably leave out until they came up because there's just so many rules as it is. And a lot of them are just situational rules. So here are the vegetables for brass. Remember to set up the cards right at the beginning of the game. For three or four players, you have to take out a certain number in order to make it work, and that's important to get that set up. Again, remember, you only get one action for the very first turn of the canal stage. In the rail age, it works as normal. You get two cards. At the very end of the game, at the end of the rail stage, when the deck is empty, you can no longer take loans. This is a very important rule. This rule I would bring up maybe when the rail age starts, if you're, if you're with people, and I would remind them of it when the um, rail stage deck is getting low. Say there's one or two more turns for everybody before the deck runs out, because a lot of times people will want to take big chunks of loans right before the deck runs out. Next, you can always get resources. Uh, even if the demand track is completely empty, you can always buy resources for five pounds a piece. Next, we have my least favorite rule in the game. This is the virtual link. You'll see a little blue line connecting Birkenhead and Liverpool. And what this allows you to do is that if you're connected to one city or the other with a link or a business, then you can build into the other city using a symbol card. But that's all this virtual link does. You can't use it to bring coal across. You can't use it to sell cotton across. You can just use a symbol card as if you were connected. Well, you could build a ship in Birkenhead if you had a business or a link going into Liverpool. But remember, you need to bring coal there. So you would need to have a link going into Birkenhead. It wouldn't have to be yours, but there wouldn't need to be a link going into Birkenhead to allow you to do that. Confused by this virtual link rule? Yeah, me too. Uh, go read the rule five more times in the rule book, and maybe you'll comprehend what it does or why it needs to exist. Next, negative income. I've never gone into this section, but maybe other people do. If you want to take loans at the very beginning of the game, there's the red and yellow sections. And so you can go back one spot at a time. And what that's going to do is put you into negative income. You're going to have to pay this amount when we get to the income stage. And if you can't pay that much income, then bad things happen. You have to sell your business tiles on the board for half their value. 
if you're that negative and you don't have any tiles on the board, you've done something horribly, horribly wrong. You may not be smart enough to play this game. Like I said, for myself, I haven't taken loans that early, but I could see where you might want to take a big loan early, get a ton of money, and try to work yourself out of that position. And finally, a, a note regarding the single double spaces, especially with uh, Preston and Lancaster, there's a port and a cotton mill slash port space. If you're building a port in either Lancaster or Preston, and you're the first one there, you must build the first port into the straight port section so that you can't just block that cotton mill space just because you want to. So what does this virtual link do? So I think, amazingly, I finally covered all the rules in brass. I don't think I've completely wore out my voice yet, so let's get to the musings. I think what I really love about brass is the tactical nature of brass. So I think I'd just take a few moments and talk about tactics versus strategy. Now, when I'd gotten into board games, I heard these terms thrown around quite a bit and how some games are tactical and some are strategic. And in looking into it and thinking about it, I think it's really interesting to think about the differences between the two, tactics and strategy, and how you have to play those games differently, and what makes a game tactical versus strategic. First of all, for those of you who are unaware, let's get some definitions. Um, and examples of strategic games versus tactical games. Strategic games give you the ability to apply a long-term strategy to a game. A classic example of this would be chess. Now chess players have memorized openings that they can apply to almost every game of chess because there's not a lot of interactions that happen within those first few turns. Or look at football. American football, for those of you international listeners, because of football's structured nature, in play calling, coaches could come in with a specific strategy. For example, pound the ball running, in which they're just going to run on as many downs as possible, and then eventually pass it once the defense gets locked into that rushing defense. So football makes it more possible to put in a strategy for coaches. Now, tactical game, tactical games change so rapidly that from turn to turn, you can't really plan more than two moves in advance because when it gets back to your turn, the game has changed completely and you need to make the best possible choice given the situation. Tactics are short-term tricks or responding, being able to make moves from turn to turn. In a more tactical game, the game changes drastically from one moment to another, and you're rarely faced with the same situation, even in a lot of repeated planes. And the more players you add in a given situation, the more tactical the game becomes as you have less control of the game as a whole. So some examples of this would be a four-player or more game of Alhambra, where you don't even want to look at the available building tiles, uh, the ones that you're going to buy, because they'll all disappear before it gets back to your turn. Or compare the game Yinch, which is an excellent abstract game from the GIF series, to chess. Now in Yinch, in one move, because when the rings move over they flip over these pieces, the board can completely change and you're faced with a completely different board position, unlike just a smaller difference by moving a pawn or a knight or something. The board in chess does not change that much. But in Yinch, the board can completely change and you have to come up with an entirely new plan in each turn. 
And in sports, we could look at football or soccer, as us Americans would say. If you're a coach in soccer, it's harder to have a long-term strategy, especially for thinking of uh, what subs you're going to put in. What three subs are you going to put in? Well, that completely depends on a million different factors on the current game state. Did a particular player get injured? Are you behind or ahead? How is your team playing? You're going to have to factor all those things when you make those decisions. So that's tactics versus strategy. Strategy is long-term, you know, eight or nine-turn or whole game plans. And tactics are making choices on the fly from turn to turn. Now, in reality, most games allow for a combination of strategy and tactics. But some definitely swing more one direction than the other. I was thinking about some really popular Euro games that maybe some of you are familiar with and just considering whether they're more strategic or more tactical. Let's look at Agricola. Now Agricola is pretty interesting because you do need to have a strategy when you're going through the game and usually you base that strategy on what cards you end up with. If you have a lot of baking cards you might say all right I'm gonna I'm gonna be a baker person or you might have a lot of large family cards that let you get a large family early and say, all right, I'm going to build that family. But of course, with how things play out and the interaction with the other players, the other players may not let you do that, and so you may have to change to another strategy. But every turn in Agricola also has a lot of tactical choices, as you have to decide whether to stay the course with that current strategy or abandon it as certain spots become available. Like, let's say that three reeds is there. Three reeds is a pretty juicy spot. But, you know, you were going to try to get those fields planted. So do you take those three reeds or do you stay the course and plow that field? Let's talk about Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, having a building strategy is very important. And if you don't know some of the good combinations to use and you're playing against more experienced players, they're going to just eat you for breakfast because there are definitely certain buildings that work well together. And this is some of the criticism to the game is that there's a few strategies that work very well and it's, it's almost a matter of memorization. But there's definitely those tactical choices on your turn of which role do you choose to, to make your strategy work. Let's talk about Tigris. I believe Tigris is almost entirely tactical because you have to react to the board on the fly. Especially with the full four players, the board changes entirely through different conflicts that happen. And you have to react to what other players do. And when you get to that mid-game where all these explosions are happening almost every turn with some of the some of the larger conflicts, when it gets back to you, it's it's a whole new world and you have to decide where to go from there. And that's what makes Tigris just fascinating. If we think about Kalis, Kalis has both, uh, but you need to learn, kind of like Puerto Rico, you need to have a good strategic combination of which favors to use combined with which buildings you should build at the same time. And that's important as knowing where to go during that worker placement portion of the game. And I think like Puerto Rico, I think this game gets criticized for having some of those consistent strategies. I'm going to get these favors and these buildings, and, and that's what I'm going to do every game. But one thing I would argue for the defense of both of those games is that you can't just go with one of those strategies every game because you have to kind of choose what will be the most successful depending on what the other players are doing as well as how many players there are and just the particular game state, how that game is flowing. This also goes back to, again, that Swiss Army Knife strategy. 
of you want to have a strategy that the other players are not using. Do what the other players aren't doing. It's usually a good key to success. Then let's look at today's game, Brass. Brass, of course, does have both, but I think it's more of a tactical game. You have to consider your situation with a fresh perspective on each turn based on the current board state. And that's what makes this game so interesting. Do you stick with your current plan? Maybe you're planning on digging deep into those cotton mills and really going for that, maybe developing. Or do you abandon that to take advantage of an opportunity that has just shown up? There's you know, no iron on the iron track. There's only one spot to build iron on the board. Is it worth it to burn both your actions to build that iron, to get all that money, even though that doesn't go in with your, your current strategic thoughts? Some of those decisions are just agonizing, which makes this game so great. So overall, in thinking about all these things, I was thinking about what kind of game is more fun, a strategic game or a tactical game? Well, I think the greatest games use a combination of both. And I think all of the five examples I've just talked about, Agricola, Puerto Rico, Tigris, Kalis, Brass, those all qualify as excellent games. And all of them require a good knowledge of the possible strategies in the game and clever use of tactics. And that's what makes them interesting. I think a great game makes it impossible for you to have this unquestionable strategy that you can use in every game. You have to recalculate your play from turn to turn. And all you can do is have a solid understanding of the factors involved and make the moves the best way you know how. The other thing to think about with strategies is, is that the really great strategies can be applied from game to game. And the more games that you play, the more potential strategies that you'll have at your disposal. These are things like the Swiss Army Knife strategy, I guess is what I'm calling it now, is a strategy that can be used with many, many games. Do what other players aren't doing. Also, just the general strategy of efficiency. In almost all games, you want to do the most you can for the least amount of resources and in the least amount of time. Figuring out how to be efficient in a lot of these games is going to help you win them. Something like a piggybacking strategy. In a lot of games, you'll figure out that you can take advantage of the work and effort done by another player, and you can jump in there and you know t take advantage of things that other players have already done. Or, of course, there is the controversial diplomacy strategy, which can be done at varying levels of annoyance. But this involves, you know, keeping other players at bay by constantly pointing out someone else who's winning, which isn't you, and quietly collecting victory points, you know, and whining profusely whenever somebody does something mean to you, etc., etc. Even, you know, little things like the help the loser strategy, you know, in a game where you've got a really close, you got a four-player game, three players are really close, and there's this fourth person who's way far behind, and you have to help somebody, you know, you figure out, all right, you're gonna, you're gonna give points to the person who really isn't, isn't, actually involved in this game. They're just kind of here. It was, it's been interesting in playing games with kids at my board game club. Sometimes with playing games with kids or, or even non-gamers, sometimes we take for granted some of those basic strategies, things we assume everybody should know. And that's why it's important to start with some of the more basic games for people who aren't as familiar with games. So that when they're faced with, a, you know, they get to, if they graduate to something like Brass, which not everyone obviously will do, but, you know, someone who's played a lot of games 
to be able to tackle brass more easily because they have a lot of information from other games that they've played. Take, for example, what you could pick up from l learning the basic game Ticket to Ride. You know, you'll learn not to take those face-up wild cards unless you have to. You'll learn not to play your cards as soon as you pick them up. You'll learn that if someone picks up every white card in sight, they might be going for that six white track and you may have to look somewhere else. You'll learn to develop maybe a route strategy before you start laying your track to go the quickest possible way to your destinations. All this, all those things are teaching them about the importance of efficiency, about the importance of going into areas where others are not going, uh, the importance of making choices between, you know, the hard decision between taking a short-term gain or waiting for your long-term strategy to play out. All those things that could be applied to more complex games like the games I previously mentioned. And I think this learning curve of strategies is probably why gamers like me, uh, who, who've played hundreds of games, drift toward really just wanting to play harder and more meatier games as they become more experienced with games. Because after you've played hundreds of games, for a lot of the lighter games, there's nothing really to learn or to get better at. You know, the game might be fun, but for me personally, if I can't figure out how to play the game better the next time, you know, I'd rather play something else. Now, I, I hope you enjoyed that little discussion about strategy versus tactics, and maybe think about that in the next game that you play. Is this a more strategic game or a more tactical game? And you might want to think about what kind of game do you like better? Well, boys and girls, uh, I'm nearing the end of page 25 of this script here. So I think it's definitely enough for now. I wish I was kidding. I have enjoyed putting this together. I hope it was a useful tool for you in learning this game that can be really hard to learn, but it's a wonderful experience to play. So I really hope that despite all the complexity of the rules, give it a shot and let me know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please help me out. Spread the word about this show, either on the internet or you know at your local game group. Consider making a small donation. You can do that at the howtoplaypodcast.com website. You could write a review on iTunes. Doesn't have to be anything complex, just two or three sentences. If you haven't yet, join up the guild. I think we're almost to 70. My goal is I'd love to have at least 100 of you on that guild showing your support. And the guild isn't just there to join it. It's also meant to be a discussion forum. I would really like to see a, a little bit more discussion up there. We had a few posts about you know, experiences in teaching games. I'd love to hear more of your comments about what you thought about the different episodes or if you have rules questions, any of those things. Consider posting up at that guild or, or seeing what's up there. You know, I, I live for your feedback. It's great to get that feedback, and it really means a lot to me. Um, so it's there. Please use it. You, you know, you could put a post up about your Essential 10. I did that on the How to Choose Games episode. If you listen to that, you want to talk about my choices, give your choices, what you think. I also put up a request for someone to, you know, try to design a micro badge for the show for uh, Board Game Geek, if you'd be willing to do that. That'd be a great thing to help out the podcast. And I think that's enough groveling for now. I know that's everybody's favorite part of the show, the groveling section. So I've got a plan, I'm pretty sure, for big episode number 10. I think we're going to make it. So stay tuned. If you haven't subscribed yet on iTunes, be sure to do that. I'm trying to put out an episode about every two weeks, 
Um, but unless you're going to make an enormous contribution to the show, um, I, I wouldn't exactly plan on it. That is going to wrap it up on this episode number nine. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I hope you have a great time in this new year of 2010. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast.